everyone. Harry Kaysen here. This episode is my Oscar show, and I'll be giving reviews for each of the 10 movies up for Best Picture. Perhaps it might guide you, you haven't seen them all, as to what you may or may not want to spend your time and emotional energy on. Stay tuned for my humble and hopefully helpful opinion. Here on Movie Night. As I just mentioned, I'm Harry Kaysen, your Movie Knight. That's K-N-I-G-H-T, a defender of the realm of movies. My background is from that world and Hollywood itself, though now I happily reside here in Cape Cod. So, I've got ten films to talk about today. Let's get started. In no particular order, I'll start with Killers of the Flower Moon. It was written by Eric Roth and Martin Scorsese, based on a nonfiction book by David Graham. It was directed by Martin Scorsese and stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone, Jesse Plemons, Tantu Cardinal, and John Lithgow. Some people are saying it's Scorsese's masterpiece. I'm not sure I'd agree, though it's certainly one of the jewels in his crown. The basic plot, for those of you who don't know, although I doubt that there are many of you, this is based on true events. It's early 20th century. Oil has been discovered in Oklahoma on an Osage reservation. A lot of oil. And the Osage are suddenly and enormously wealthy. But, in short order, they are preyed upon by ruthless people seeking to get their wealth from them by any means possible. Robert De Niro is a local rancher who claims to be friends with the Osage, and Leonardo DiCaprio plays his hapless and rather dim nephew who is basically De Niro's cat's paw. Lily Gladstone plays an Osage woman who was wooed by DiCaprio in becoming his wife. Jesse Plemons plays an FBI agent sent out to try and protect the Osage from the money-mad predators circling them like vultures. Well, obviously this is no laugh riot, but the production standards are first-rate, as with all Scorsese films. Lily Gladstone is especially fine, with a core of serenity and sang-froid particularly unique to actors of our day. Expect her to win the Oscar she's nominated for. However, this is not all indigenous people good, white people bad. There are subtleties here. There are shades, as evidenced by DiCaprio's tortured character, who loves his wife, but does he love her more than money? I'd go so far as to say this is an important piece, helmed by an important director. It won't be everyone's cup of oil, especially at over three hours, but I found it fascinating, tragic, beautiful, and memorable. Killers of the Flower Moon. Up next, Anatomy of a Fall. It was written by Justine Triet, along with her life partner, Arthur Harari. It was directed by Ms. Triet. It stars Sandra Hewler, Swan Arlo, Milo Machado-Grainer, and Samuel Theis. Besides being nominated for an Oscar, this film won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year, that festival's highest prize. It is a French-produced film that is largely in English. This is a murder mystery-slash-courtroom drama, and to call it Hitchcockian would not be doing this film or Hitchcock a disservice. Here's the plot. A married couple, Sandra and Samuel, live in a fixer-upper chalet in the French Alps in a less-than-perfect marriage. 
They have a preteen son, Daniel, who is partially blind. Within very short order, the husband falls to his death from the attic window while the son is out for a walk and the wife is supposedly in the other room. The police arrive. Sandra is in shock. How did this happen? An accident? Suicide? Murder? We, as the audience, will spend the next 90 minutes trying to figure that out. But this is not Glass Onion or Agatha Christie. It's much more subtle, like life itself. The director, Ms. Triet, only parcels out little nuggets of information at a time as the movie progresses, and tantalizingly so. We meet the late husband in a series of flashbacks, showing us how complicated and wounded he was from the get-go. And more and more of Sandra's true nature comes forth in unexpected ways. Also, in key moments, there are conflicting bits of dialogue laid over from other scenes trying to throw us off the trail, or maybe lead us back onto it. It's sly and devilish. As for the actors, Miss Hugler is a German actor who actually stars in two Oscar-nominated movies this year, a rare achievement. Here she's giving a tour de force performance in a custom role that was written just for her. And she's aided and abetted quite well by the cast around her. Telling you more details of the story would be cruel of me to spoil the pleasure you'll have in trying to untie this Gordian knot. Hitch may not be with us anymore, but his spirit is alive and well in this meticulous and fascinating whodunit. Anatomy of a Fall. And now we come to Poor Things. It was written by Tony McNamara from the book by Alasdair Gray. It was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. It stars Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, Willem Dafoe, and Rami Youssef. It all starts out in London in early 1900s, or a version of London if it were designed by Elvis on Ecstasy. A scientist, played by Willem Dafoe, is conducting experiments in reanimating dead tissue, like Frankenstein. Actually, there's a lot here like Frankenstein. If Frankenstein was an outrageous sex comedy, Emma Stone plays the monster, so to speak, and Mark Ruffalo plays a handsome lout who can't help but be mesmerized by the wild, unpredictable, reanimated girl-slash-woman-slash-prankster-slash-whatever-the-hell she is. This is, for all intents and purposes, a tale of a female's progress in the world. And what progress it is. Like I said, this is a sex comedy with the accent on sex. A lot of nudity, mostly from Emma Stone, though she's hardly alone in that regard. There's also a bit of violence and scenes of extreme surgery. <laughs> it's got something to offend everyone. But I found it brilliant and hilarious. What's around the next corner? You'll never guess. And the performances. Ms. Stone is Oscar-nominated, and in this film, she's the hardest-working actor around. I can hear her saying to her director, Yorgos, um, I'm supposed to do what to who and how? Well, bring it on. Is she having a field day? Yes. Is she enjoying the mad whirling time while charging forth as possibly the most liberated female character in the history of movies? With bells on. But this is Yorgos Lanthimos' film all the way. He is charging the barricades here. I can't guarantee you will be as amused as I was. That is, if you can keep your eyes from popping out of your head. But I can guarantee you will never be bored. Poor things.
And now, The Zone of Interest. It was written by Jonathan Glazer from the novel by Martin Amos, and it was directed by Jonathan Glazer. It stars Sandra Hewler, here she is again, and Christian Friedel. This is a Holocaust drama, you don't already know, but here's what differentiates it. Set in occupied Poland during World War II, it's based on real people. We follow the host family, the father of that family, happening to be the commandant of the Auschwitz concentration camp. The entire family of husband, wife, five small children, and their servants all live in a comfortable house on just the other side of the high wall that separates it from the concentration camp itself. But this is not Schindler's List, where the commandant looked out over prisoners and shot them for sport. This is much more subtle and frighteningly believable. The host family go about their daily lives, having picnics, tending their garden, having tea served on the porches, all the while, just over there, out of sight, unspeakable atrocities are being committed. How do we know? Every now and then, there is a random gunshot in the distance. Every now and then, a steam train chugs up to the camp. It's unseen cargo being discharged as orders are being barked out. How does one live with oneself, knowing what's going on beyond that high wall? Ah, therein lies the rub. What makes this film so riveting is the utter calm and ordinariness we witness this family experiencing while living beside one of the most notoriously evil places in the history of mankind. The civilized aspect of it all is what makes it so uncivilized. The wife tries on a fur coat, knowing full well its owner is probably now ash floating over the house. But the original owner wasn't a person, it was a thing, it was the other. Seems like there's entirely too much of that kind of thinking going on in the world, even as I speak. This movie actually tries to expose the mechanism of lies we tell ourselves in order to condemn our fellow humans. Is this film violent or bloody? No. Is there torture and screaming? Only in the distance. Though that distance be a mere 50 yards away. Highest marks for all those involved in this chilling endeavor. The Zone of Interest. Up next is American Fiction. It was written by Cord Jefferson from the book Erasure by Percival Everett. It was directed by Cord Jefferson as the first film hemmed by him, another of the first-time directors whose films are nominated. It stars Jeffrey Wright, Tracy Ellis Ross, John Ortiz, Leslie Uggams, Sterling K. Brown, and Issa Rae. This is a present-day comedy set in Massachusetts. We follow Dr. Thelonious Ellison, nicknamed Monk, played by Jeffrey Wright, He's a Ph.D. professor of English. His sister, Lisa, played by Tracy Ellis Ross, is a medical doctor, and his brother, Cliff, played by Sterling K. Brown, is a plastic surgeon. Quite an accomplished family. They have a beach house. They're sophisticated. The fact that they're also black doesn't play into it at all. That is until Monk tries to get his new book published. Monk's agent, played by John Ortiz, tells him there's no market for his scholarly work. He should go check out a new hot author. Monk goes to a symposium for this new author, an obviously well-educated black woman, played by Issa Rae, but when she reads from her newly acclaimed work, it sounds like she's straight from the ghetto. Monk is appalled at the obvious pandering to a guilty white audience, and so Monk, enraged, quickly fires off a wild piece of fiction under a pseudonym that purports to tell a down-and-dirty first-person account of what it's like to survive on the mean streets of the hood, 
a place Monk has never even been. Big surprise, the book is a runaway hit. Now Monk has to figure out if he's going to pretend to be a thug, take the money, which will help his mother's medical bills, or is he going to blow it all up because he's disgusted that his previous serious work isn't taken seriously and that sensationalistic trash seems to be all the rage. But there's more here than two-dimensional laughs. Monk's family are portrayed as fully realized people. The director, Cord Jefferson, takes the time to let us walk around in their shoes. It's rare for a high-concept comedy to go to this place. What could have been frenzied and strident instead is thoughtful and intelligent and engaging. And it makes fun of everyone. Black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, <laughs> you name it. American Fiction. And now, Maestro. It was written by Bradley Cooper and Josh Singer, and it was directed by Bradley Cooper. It stars Bradley Cooper, along with Kerry Mulligan, Matt Bomer, and Sarah Silverman. As most of you know, this is a biopic about the late great American composer and conductor, Leonard Bernstein. It starts at the fateful moment of his first time on the conductor's podium at Carnegie Hall, which leads him on a meteoric path to the absolute pinnacle of American classical music. I personally remember quite well who Leonard Bernstein was to the American public. Not only did he compose the music for the phenomenally successful West Side Story, and not only was he the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, he also made regular appearances on television, hosting his Young People's Concerts, wherein he would introduce classical music to a young audience. There's really no comparison today in the American classical music world to someone like Bernstein. In pop music, yes, there are superstars, but... Not in classical music, not at this level. Meanwhile, those days in the real world, Bernstein's personal life was just that, his personal life. It wasn't in the picture. Well, <laughs> it's in this picture. What's also in there is the arena he lived in, the glittering New York parties, the showbiz glamour of it all, and it's very heady and very beautiful. Perhaps too much time is spent on Bernstein's personal struggles with his relationships and perhaps not enough time is spent on him developing his genius. And perhaps that could best be explored in a book with an inner narrative rather than a movie. Dealer's choice, I think. Harry Mulligan, meanwhile, gives an Oscar-nominated performance as Bernstein's wife, Felicia. She's deeply in love with her husband, though he gives her every cause to quit him, not the least being his wandering eye and wandering body. Speaking for myself, having been around quote-unquote artists, actual and so-called, there is always a danger they believe their rare temperament grants them the right to do anything they want, regardless of the consequences to those around them. Oh, the burden of the artists and their sensitive souls. Hogwash? Perhaps, perhaps not. Now, Bernstein was not a monster like Picasso or James Joyce, shredding the souls of those in orbit around him. This movie shows Bernstein, via Bradley Cooper's dedicated portrayal, to be a searching, desperate soul yearning to express his inner realm, which seemed unfulfilled. Though there are some spectacular sequences where we see Bernstein at the podium, who seems as fulfilled an artist as there could be. It's a complex tribute to an endlessly complex man. Maestro. You're listening to Movie Night, 
here on WOMR and WFMR. I'm continuing with my countdown to the Oscar-nominated movies this year. Up next is Past Lives. It was written and directed by Celine Song. It stars Greta Lee and Tao Yu. This is Ms. Song's first feature film, and an Oscar nomination under these circumstances is extraordinary. She's the second of two people this year to have this happen. This movie, however, is more subtle than any of the other movies I've mentioned thus far, but in many ways it's also the most heartfelt. Here's the basic plot. Twenty years ago in Seoul, South Korea, two young people, Na Young and Hae Sung, meet and are attracted to each other as 12-year-olds. But Na's family moves with her to Toronto, leaving the boy Hae behind, though they both harbor thoughts of what might have been. Fast forward to 12 years later, and Hae searches for Na on Facebook. Miraculously, he finds her, and they connect via a video call. But life gets in their way, and they are separated again. He meets another girl and falls in love, while Na meets another boy and starts a relationship with him. Another 12 years pass, and Hae is now separated from his girlfriend, though Na has married an American, played by John Magaro. Hay manages to find Na again in New York City, and though Na is married, they arrange to meet. What happens next will be for you to discover, though I can say it's not what you probably expect. In fact, there's much about this film that is beyond expectations. As I said, it's very subtle, with performances from Greta Lee and Teo Yoon that are deep and sincere. Not a lot of movies out there like this, and not many like this have ever been nominated for Best Picture. If you're in the mood for a quiet, sweet, sad, almost love story, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's not an art film, one that tries too hard to be meaningful. It's a film about what might have been. A topic we can all relate to. Past Lives And now, in this continuing parade of Oscar-nominated films, we have The Holdovers. It was written by David Hemmingson and directed by Alexander Payne. It stars Paul Giamatti, Divine Joy Randolph, and Dominic Sessa. This is Paul Giamatti's movie pretty much all the way, except for the scenes with Divine Joy Randolph, who pretty much runs away with it all. And, of course, Dominic Sessa is in there pitching, too. The Basic Plot it's December 1970, and Paul Giamatti is Paul Hunnam, a professor at a boys' boarding school. He's universally disliked by students and staff for his strict grading and grating personality. To punish Hunnam, he's ordered to supervise the six students left behind for the Christmas holiday, the holdovers. We focus on one of those sad sacks, Angus Tully, played by Dominic Sessa, who feels about Hunnam the way everyone else does openly disdainful. The only other person there is Mary, the cafeteria supervisor played by Divine Joy Randolph, who is bitter over the death of her son in Vietnam. Well, things go from bad to worse until one of the well-to-do parents of these kids mercifully sends his helicopter to pick up these kids and spirit them away. But Angus can't reach his mom to get permission, so off the other kids gleefully fly while Angus is left behind with sour old Mr. Hunnam and sharp and spiky Mary. What follows is a couple of road trips, 
an awkward Christmas party, and a desperate attempt by Angus to connect with his imperfect family. It goes from bad to worse, to not so bad, to real bad, to pretty touching, to an unexpected ending. How well you can take spending with the either you like him or hate him Paul Giamatti will determine your tolerance for this quirk fest. Meanwhile, Divine Joy Randolph is nominated for an Oscar, as is Paul Giamatti, both of which are well-deserved. If you were ever a teenager who believed you had no future ahead of you, but were surprised to find out there was an adult, who you least expected, that actually cared about you, and I'm hoping there are a number of us out there, this movie may just be what you're looking for. The Holdovers. And now, it's time for Barbie. Ah, yes. It was written by Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, and it was directed by Greta Gerwig. It stars Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferreira, and Will Ferrell. So, you'd have to be a sheepherder in Outer Mongolia not to have heard or seen an assessment of this juggernaut of a movie, but I'll lay out the basics just in case you woke up from a six-month coma. Barbie... The actual doll, played by Ms. Robbie, lives in Barbieland with all the other Barbies, all of different colors and talents, except they're all Barbies. And Ken, played by Mr. Gosling, is her boyfriend, quote unquote. All is serene, all is colorful, all is accessorized to a fault, and Barbie is the epitome of unexamined bliss, like parts of Southern California, I think. And why not? Then one day Barbie wakes up. Why isn't she round-the-clock happy like before? Ah, oh, to find that out, she must go on a vision quest, Ken inviting himself along, and they traverse their make-believe world into the world us mere mortals inhabit. Along the way, there is frustration, chagrin, confusion, and enlightenment. That's pretty much it. Barbie gets woke. Humans get woke. We as an audience get woke. And we have fun getting there. But this isn't just a movie, this is a cultural milestone, like Sputnik or the moon landing or the appearance of the first Barbie doll back in 1959. Nothing will ever be the same. It's also girl power with a sense of humor and an extra helping of style, more power to it because of that. Is it too woke? Hmm, maybe. Is it too long? Hmm, maybe. Is it too fun? Hmm, not possible. And the fact that Ryan Gosling is Oscar-nominated while the director Greta Gerwig and the star Margot Robbie are not nominated? Well, that's just jaw-droppingly ridiculous. And the opposite of woke. Barbie. And now the final offering. Last but not least, it's Oppenheimer. It was written and directed by Christopher Nolan, and it stars Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr., Emily Blunt, Florence Pugh, and Matt Damon. Like Barbie, you'd have to have been living under a rock not to be familiar with the details. And for those of you who live life above ground, I'll be mercifully short in my description. We follow J. Robert Oppenheimer from his days as a college student, to his professorship, to his heading the Manhattan Project that created the atomic bomb, 
to the Senate hearings, wherein he is subjected to a harsh assessment, determining whether or not the left-leaning genius is worthy of his clearance to work on top-secret projects. Along the way, we meet Albert Einstein, soulfully played by Tom Conti, and a no-nonsense General Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon. We also encounter the loves of Offenheimer's life, his girlfriend-slash-mistress, Jean Tatlock, played by Florence Pugh, and his complicated wife, Kitty Oppenheimer, played by Emily Blunt. This, like Maestro in its depiction of larger-than-life geniuses, treads a fine line between bad behavior and justifiable eccentricity. Well, Chris Nolan loves these kinds of characters. Batman, in his telling, was a tortured good guy. Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar was out to save the world, though he might lose everyone he loves. Leo DiCaprio delved into the psyche of another at his own personal peril. Like I say, Nolan adores it when the stakes are personal and high. They're about as high as it gets here. Killian Murphy, nominated for an Oscar, and he has a good shot at it, is absolutely convincing as the tortured soul Oppenheimer. Emily Blunt is also nominated, as is Robert Downey Jr., who also has a good shot as Rear Admiral Louis Strauss. This is a very smart film, though not too smart as to be self-satisfied. It's also gripping, visually alive, and multi-layered. A bit long, perhaps. Sign of the times. Chris Nolan, nominated eight times previously for an Oscar and never a winner, seems poised to finally be taking home the little gold soldier. He has said that should it come to pass, it would be the high point of his life. Well, go get him, Chris. Oppenheimer. Now, just for the heck of it and because I can, I'd like to briefly mention two overlooked movies this last year that I admire. First up is The Wonder, a deeply moving film starring Florence Pugh as a nurse in 19th century Ireland, seeking an answer to a mysterious spiritual puzzle. And the other is The Deepest Breath, a documentary about freediving that tells a true-life tale of unbelievable bravery and sacrifice. Both of those are available on Netflix. Next month, I'll be back to my regular format of reviewing four new movies, along with an interview with one of my Hollywood showbiz pals. Well, that's it, dear listeners. Those are my two cents times ten. A sincere thank you to the exemplary folks here at WOMR and WFMR, especially to John Braden, our fearless leader, and to Mr. Matthew Dunn, our stalwart technical supervisor. And as always, to my dear wife, Lynn, for being beside me in the dark, watching these movies. And to all of you, too, I thank you. This is Harry Kaysen, your movie night. Goodbye, and good movies. <laughs>